This is God's word. Let me read it for us. Please listen. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God to help us understand this part of his word. Father, we come before you now and ask that you would come and be with us, helping us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying to us in this passage of scripture. Oh, Father, many of us tonight are coming um, from backgrounds full of religion, from backgrounds full of moralism, from backgrounds full of believing that the Bible and Christianity are really all about a big list of do's and don'ts. And if we do more right things than wrong things, maybe we will be okay in the end. God, that's so common in our city. It's so common in South Texas. And we ask tonight that you would help us to see um, the faultiness of such a way of thinking about our relationship with you and that you would help us to understand the power of the gospel. That the gospel is for those who know that they can never measure up and accept that Jesus measures up for them. Help us to believe that tonight, we ask. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're making our way through Mark here, we've seen in the last couple of weeks and tonight five different instances of increasingly significant conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day who are represented here in our passage tonight by these men called the Pharisees. 
Two weeks ago, when Jesus healed the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof, remember that story? When he healed the paralytic lowered through the roof, the people there accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to forgive the man's sins. And then last week, Tim preached for us and reminded us that Jesus, when he was with us, loved to hang out with, quote, sinners, with the people who were beyond... um, beyond hanging out with for the religious establishment of the day. He was spending time with the tax collectors and he spends time with prostitutes and he spends time with those who know how far away from God they are. And that has caused an ever-increasing state of tension in Jesus's ministry already early on in Mark. Tonight, we're going to see conflicts in all three of these encounters that I just read about. And the point of the narrative, in a sense, is to push forward the tension that we as readers should already be feeling here early on in Jesus's ministry. I mean, we're already only finishing Mark chapter two. It's to show us that almost from the very outset, Jesus experienced significant opposition, both from the government, from the Gentiles, but also, and especially from the religious people, from the Jews, from his own people. And one of the most important things for you to get is that Jesus' ministry was a ministry that was always surrounded by conflict. That's one of the things that Mark wants us to understand. But maybe more importantly, what Mark wants us to understand tonight is that Jesus came to critique both the religious and the irreligious. And in particular, Jesus came with a very sharp critique against religion. Now, you might think that's very strange to hear someone like me, a pastor, preaching in a church say, I mean, aren't I a representative of religion itself? Possibly many of you might be be thinking that, that right now. And that's a completely valid thing to think, given the culture we're in, given what it's like to be in suburban San Antonio in the year 2015. You know, most of you probably grew up somewhat religious. Most of you probably grew up going to a church of some form. Your sense of morality, your moral compass was in some way shaped by the Christian scriptures. You had a pretty good idea of what was right and of what was wrong. You're really in some ways fairly conservative in your beliefs. A lot of people in our city, a lot of people around us grew up in a sort of a religious environment. And a lot of people in our city have rebelled against that sort of environment or grew up in a very different environment. They grew up in a state of irreligion. They weren't in church at all growing up. They didn't hear about Moses or Noah or Adam, and they don't know the difference between any of them. And they don't believe them at all to begin with. So uh, they, they have a very different moral compass, a very different frame of reference. That's sort of the standard way we approach our culture. You're either religious or you're irreligious. But Jesus came to offer us what many pastors have said is a third way. He came to critique not just the irreligious, secular, pagan people, but he also came to critique the religious people. And in fact, the main opponents of Jesus throughout the gospel are the religious leaders of his day, the conservative religious establishment of ancient Israel. And I think that's really, in some ways, the main point that Mark wants to communicate to us through these three encounters, these three conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees in our passage tonight. Let me try and sum it up in this way. Here's the main idea I want to communicate. I want to set apart for you the gospel of Jesus and the way of Jesus from religion. And here's the way we're going to do that. Think about it this way. Religion says, obey dutifully and you will be accepted. But the gospel says you are accepted 
Therefore, obey joyfully. Okay, I, I don't want you to miss that. So if you turn off right now, just wait five more seconds for me to say this again, okay? Religion says, obey dutifully and you will be accepted. But the gospel says you are accepted, so obey joyfully. And I want to divide these stories up into two big points because they're really two kind of ways that Jesus, through these encounters, is making that point. Two, tra- uh, th- two contrasts. The first point I want to show you is that religion is gloomy, but the gospel is joyous. And then secondly, I want to show you that religion is oppressive, but the gospel is freeing. Religion is gloomy, the gospel is joyous. Religious, religion is oppressive, but the gospel is freeing. I know it's hot in here, by the way. I'm hotter than anyone because I'm preaching. Um, and we're working on them get to turn the air down. It's a little cooler than it was last week. So maybe by August, it'll be warm, uh, cool enough in here. So it is summer in South Texas. So hang in there. Okay, so first, religion is gloomy. The gospel of joyous. The gospel is joyous. Uh, By this point in the story, picking up here in chapter 2, verse 18, the religious authorities are already getting very nervous about Jesus because he represents real, true authority. And they're beginning to see him as a threat to their pretend authority, to their pretend power. And so we see here in chapter 2, verse 18, these people come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why is it that the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast... We see them fasting, but we don't see your disciples fasting. What's going on with that? Now, it's a question aimed at Jesus' disciples, but really it's aimed at Jesus because the student is going to do what the teacher does, right? And, and this is a classic instance of religion, of the way of religion. The Pharisees are wondering, and they're trying to get Jesus to be exposed as one who isn't as pious or as godly or as religiously put together as they are. And so they bring this issue to the forefront. They say, why aren't you fasting as much as we're fasting? Now, fasting, if you don't know, is a very good thing. It's something that's talked about in the scriptures. It's when you willingly withhold from usually eating food or from doing something else that you regularly do in your daily life so that you can focus on your relationship with God, so that you can engage in spiritual disciplines, so that you can feel your need of him, so that you can learn to put to death the cares of this world. It has all sorts of good purposes. But, of course, the Pharisees had taken what was a very, very good thing, what was a very, very biblical thing, and they had twisted it and distorted it. The Pharisees, we learn in Luke chapter 18, fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And not only did they fast twice a week, but they said, if you were going to be sort of a varsity level Jew, you had to fast twice a week too. It was a requirement for holiness, for piety. And that's a key thing to remember. Because the Old Testament, which is the common authority, both for the Pharisees and for Jesus, only requires fasting one day a year. And that's on the Day of Atonement. You can find that in Leviticus and Exodus. But by the time of the Pharisees, twice a week has become the new norm. And so what we see the Pharisees doing here is twisting God's law, which is good and which is intended for our flourishing, so that they can make it manageable. So that they can sort of take it in in bite-sized portions. And a very important question to ask at this point is why? Why would the Pharisees do that? Why add all these man-made religious restrictions and rules to what God's law already says and then require them of yourselves and others? Why? Well, here's the reason why. The reason why the Pharisees, the reason why anyone adds these man-made requirements to God's law is because they believe in their heart of hearts 
that the level of their commitment determines the level of their acceptance. They believe that the level of their commitment to God determines the level of their acceptance with God. And so the more they fast, the more they prove themselves to be spiritual enough, the more they show that they're devoted and holy, the more God will accept and love them. College football season is coming up. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm getting excited about it. This is sort of the sports doldrum time for me. And college football hasn't started quite yet, but it's coming. And if you're a Division I college football player, you're not quite practicing for the fall season yet. But what you are doing most likely are voluntary workouts. If you're not familiar with college football, you might not be familiar with this. But think about it this way. Voluntary should be in quotation marks. The coaches, you know, they don't oversee voluntary workouts during the summer because that breaks NCAA rules. But they tell the leaders on the team to get the team together and to go through drills and to work out together and to learn the playbook. And these these workouts are voluntary. You don't have to be there. Your status as a student athlete doesn't require it. But if you're not there, you can be certain that that will affect your status in the fall. You can be certain that the coaches will know who is showing up every day at 6 a.m. for voluntary workouts and who is not. Because those people that are there are the people that are going to get the playing time. They're showing their commitment level is high. And therefore, the coaches are going to accept them. That's the way most of you think about your relationship with God. It's the way most of people throughout human history. It's the way the Pharisees thought about their relationship with God. And it's exactly what they're getting at here in this question about fasting to Jesus. Now, I want to talk more about that in just a second, but let's look at Jesus's response to the Pharisees. He said, they say, why don't you fast like we fast and John the baptizer disciples fast? What's up, Jesus? And Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, what he's saying is for my disciples to fast would be the equivalent of like a a fundamentalist teetotaler at a wedding reception. Not going to be very fun. (laughs) Uh, That's supposed to be funny, but you fundamentalists didn't like it very much, obviously. Um, It's it's the the equivalent of someone who's sort of a buzzkill, you know, hanging out at a party. It's the equivalent of someone who's gloomy and dour and always down, kind of ruining everyone's fun. Jesus is saying here that my kingdom is a kingdom of joy. My kingdom is a kingdom of life. My kingdom is a kingdom of happiness and peace. And it's not the time to fast right now. One day, he says, my disciples will fast when the bridegroom, that's Jesus, when I'm gone. But for now, that's not the time. And so when you're trying to fit my new way into your old ways of doing things, the new way of Jesus into the old way of religion, you're going to run into all sorts of gridlock. That's what he's getting at there in 21 and 22 when he uses these somewhat arcane illustrations and analogies. He's saying that when you try to fit the new way of Jesus in with the old way, the old pharisaical way of religion, the old pharisaical way of relating to God, it's just not going to work. It's like a round peg in a square hole. It's like trying to put a new piece of unshrunk cloth on an old shirt. It's like pouring new wine into an old wineskin. It's going to be destructive. That's the point. So Jesus is saying that I have come to usher in something new, something different, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of life, because those who trust in me will experience such a thing. I have not come to usher in a kingdom of a kingdom of gloominess and sourness. And so 
um, Jesus is kind of combating the Pharisees here and really making the point again that the way of Jesus and the way of religion is, is a mutually exclusive way. And so let's just, at this point, take a second again and ask ourselves a question. Um, how do you know if your own spiritual life is characterized by religion or by the gospel? How do you know if you're following the way of the gospel or the way of Jesus? One way you can answer that is by asking yourself another question. Is your spiritual life characterized mainly by joyful obedience or by gloomy acquiescence? Why do you do the things you do spiritually? Why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you serve the poor? Why do you fast? Do you do it to get God to love you? Or do you do it because you know God already loves you? One way to know the answer to that is to see your emotional condition as you do these things. Are you gloomy? Are you driven by a, this is just what I have to do, let's get through it mentality? Or do these ways to approach and relate to God give you life and joy and hope and faith? You see, a spirit of gloomy, dutiful acquiescence is the spirit of religion, not the spirit of the gospel. And the reason for that is that it's all based on the false belief that you have to do these things to get God to love you, to get God to accept you, and that God, as it were, grades on a curve. You know, the Pharisees were at the top of the curve. They're at the top of the religiously motivated scale. And so are some of you. But that leads ultimately to you hating your life, frankly, and to hating others and pushing yourself again and again and again to perform. It puts you on a deadly religious treadmill. The gospel, on the other hand, frees you to pursue knowing God in these ways and enjoy God because it tells you that you are already fully approved in Jesus Christ's performance and not in your own. So you can get off of your gloomy religious treadmill. That's the contrast that Jesus is drawing here for us. Religion is gloomy, but the gospel is joyous. Secondly, I want to show you that religion is oppressive, but the gospel is freeing. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 23, Mark tells us two different interactions that both deal with the Sabbath. And they're making a very similar point here. Now listen, the Sabbath was... Big, big deal for an ancient Jewish person. And, and because the Pharisees are like super Jews, you know, they're superhero Jews, um, the Sabbath is just their sweet spot. It is their bread and butter. I mean, they love the Sabbath. They're obsessed with the Sabbath. In fact, they're so obsessed with it that similarly to the fasting issue, they had added all sorts of man-made restrictions and requirements to God's law. And like fasting, the Sabbath is obviously a good thing. It's the fourth commandment after all. It says on one day in seven, you should rest. You should not do any work. You should enjoy God and rest in God as you worship with God's people and as you rest with your family. But the Pharisees had added History tells us 39, 39 laws that were a part of their kind of running commentary of the Old Testament. 39 laws to the Sabbath law alone. And the reason, again, that they added these laws is because they wanted to be sure that they were doing it right. They wanted to be sure 
that they were going to be completely obedient. So you understand their line of thinking. If we're not supposed to work on this day, then what constitutes work? Well, this constitutes work. Hence the 39 additions. And the Pharisees, by Jesus' day, believed that what Jesus and his disciples do in these stories constituted work and therefore was a violation of God's law. Let's see what happens. The Pharisees say that they are breaking God's law when the disciples are walking through the grain fields and they pluck some of the heads of grain to snack on. And then they also ridiculously say that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath law when he heals this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And, and part of what Jesus is doing here in response is upping the ante. He's upping the ante and attempting to show you and me how ridiculous this man-made addition, this religiosity that they have created and perverted God's law is. He does it by calling this man with the withered hand into the middle. Did you notice that? He calls him into the middle of the room on the Sabbath day, and he looks at them and he asks them a question directly. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. And they don't say anything, of course. He looks around at them with anger and then he heals the man. So Jesus here ups the ante. And really the entire point of these two stories is found there in chapter two, verse 27, when Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Listen, that gets to the real issues with the Pharisees. That gets to the real issue with religion. These people had made the gift of the Sabbath a curse. They had made the freedom that the Sabbath was supposed to bring something that was actually enslaving and oppressive. And the reason, again, behind that is because they functioned as if their obedience and commitment is what will eventually make them acceptable to God. Listen, when you believe this, I have to obey God for him to love me. You will want every single detail on how to obey. If you've been a teacher before, you know that that's true. I've done a lot of teaching in my life, and you always have the pet student who comes up after the first day of class when the syllabus is passed out, and they'll knock on your office door, or they'll cut you off right after the class, and they'll they'll say, okay, what do I need to do to get an A++++++? And I'm like, oh, it's right there in the syllabus. And they're like, okay, but tell me the secret. Like, give me the steps. Tell me what needs to be done to really, really be in your good graces. To be numero uno student in whatever class. You teachers know every, well, maybe today all the students just don't give a rip. But in my experience, there's always a couple of students that are like that. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're trying to make God's law manageable enough for them to master But what's happened is rather than mastering it, they have been mastered in all sorts of very grotesque ways. And Jesus is attempting to tell them lovingly here that the Sabbath and really that all of life with God is intended to free us. It's not intended to oppress us. And there's a lot I could say, but let me just say this. If you want to understand what Christianity is all about, If you want to understand what the gospel is all about, you've got to rid yourself of the very common notion in our culture that being a Christian means just following a list of rules that is going to oppress and restrain. That is not it. That is religion. 
God, God didn't give you to the rules because the rules are his priority. God gave the rules to you because you are his priority. He wants to free you and help you. And to understand Christianity, you have to get away from the idea that it is nothing but a spiritual to-do list where you start at the top and check off every possible box in order to be acceptable to God, in order to be acceptable to the church. That's the mistake that the Pharisees made again and again and again. It's the mistake that religion makes again and again and again, and it is utterly contrary to the gospel. It's utterly contrary to the way of Jesus. Now, some of you are Christians. You believe in your head that Jesus accepts you based on what he's done and not what you've done. But functionally, you live just like a Pharisee. Functionally, you are merely religious. You function as if God relates to you depending on how well you manage and negotiate his law rather than allowing your failures to negotiate his law drive you to him in faith so that then he can empower you to actually obey it. You believe that God relates to you based on your own righteousness. And what you need to hear again is that Jesus is critiquing the default nature of your hearts. He's critiquing our religiosity. He's saying that your status with God is based on Jesus' righteousness, not your own. How do you know if you're like that? I mean, functionally, if you're living just mere religion, if you're living like a Pharisee, let me give you a couple of ways. One way you know for sure is when you approach God and the religious life, the spiritual life, with a just tell me what I need to do mentality. A just tell me what I need to do mentality. You want a checklist. You're like that A++ student that comes before his teacher. You want to make the law manageable because you want to be certain you're doing it right so that God will approve. Now, I'm not saying here that you shouldn't want to obey the law and that you shouldn't try to do what God's law says. What I'm saying is that when you're trying to do what God's law says so that maybe God will accept you, you've completely reversed the thing, and that leads to dire consequences, you see. You, uh, you, 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 know, you know you're like this if you're maybe like this in your marriage. If you've been married for a few years and you have some issues and maybe you've gone to see a marriage counselor, which is a great thing. I recommend that all of you do that. I don't care how long you've been married. You should do that. And uh, you come into the counselor and you say, okay, give me three steps to a better marriage pronto so I can get on with it. I got an hour for lunch here. Let's go. Uh, or maybe you want to be a better parent. You want your kids to grow up and love and believe in Jesus. And, and so you read these books, and reading books is good. You should know that about me by now. I love books. I'm pro-book. But a book with seven steps to being the best parent ever is not going to fix all of your problems immediately. We all too often, especially as Americans, fall into a just-tell-me-what-I-need-to-do mentality. And that oftentimes is a sign that we're living in a merely religious way that we were refusing to rest in what Jesus has already accomplished and won for us and attempting to fix it all ourselves. And the irony of it all is that you can never actually have a better marriage and never actually be a better parent or a better son or a better daughter or a better worker unless you first understand the power of the gospel, that God accepts you completely apart of your deservedness. He accepts you because of Jesus' deservedness. When you get that, you can begin to navigate all the difficulties that life brings. But that's one sign that you might be a functional Pharisee. Signs you're a redneck, signs you're a functional Pharisee, right? Just tell me what I need to do mentality. A couple more. Second, a a sense of superiority. Um, 
I am part of the right tribe. Theologically, politically, socially, in your office, in your homeschool co-op, in your public school, wherever you are as a student, as a ninth grader, I'm a part of the right group. I'm a part of the group that's good or I'm part of the group that's bad. And that makes me better. That makes me more worthy. That makes me more deserving. Now, you might never say that. But when you have a sense of superiority against any other type of person, you have inculcated that into your heart. It's running through your spiritual veins. You, You are in many ways acting like a Pharisee. Racism, classism, sexism, all the bad isms are just universal signs of a faulty view of the gospel, of religiosity, of a sense of superiority. Closely attached to that is when you have an us versus them mentality. You have it right, and you're going to bunker yourself in against the big bad world that has it all wrong. And you're basing your life out of fear and out of a sense of self-preservation. Because when these people begin to stain me, that's when I'm really going to get into trouble. You know what the gospel says to people who have an us versus them mentality? To me, when I tend to have an us versus them mentality, you are just as stained as all of the people you are trying to protect your family against. You are just as much in need of God's love and grace as all of the other people that you think are inferior or don't have it right or that you don't want any part of. A sense of Phariseeism comes out in an us versus them mentality. And then lastly, and ironically, oftentimes you are acting functionally like a Pharisee when you completely disregard God's law at times, and then at other times you obsess with it because you feel so guilty. And so your life is like a pendulum. You're trying, trying, trying on the religious treadmill to measure up, and you realize that you can't do it. You realize you're failing all the time, and you just say, screw it, I'm done. And you go to the other side of the pendulum, And you go and do whatever you want for a while, like the prodigal son, right? And then you start feeling really, really bad and think, man, I know better than that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to try harder and go back to the other side of the pendulum. And so you go from having your mountaintop youth camp experience and feeling super, super religious and super, super close to Jesus to the next week, smoking pot in the bathroom, right? And it's back and forth. And and there's no consistency in your life. That's not a sign of gospel growth. It's a sign of Phariseeism. It's a sign of functional religiosity. Listen, if any of those things are familiar to your own heart, then take courage. Because Jesus tells you that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? You've probably heard that a million times. Listen, here's what it means. Jesus is saying here, he is is the Sabbath. Jesus is the rest that all of the Sabbath rests that we are supposed to participate in only merely point to. Jesus is the place where you can stop trying to measure up. Jesus is the place where you can get off of your religious performance treadmill. Resting in Jesus allows you to finally admit, yep, I'm worse than I thought I was. I'm worse and more broken than I dared admit. I'm a vile sinner, desperately in need of someone to forgive me. Only the gospel, only resting in Jesus allows you to admit that about yourself. Pharisees can't admit that. They don't think they have a problem. They're too busy trying to fix themselves. And only the gospel then tells you that you are more loved by God, even in your vile and wretched condition as a sinner. 
You are more loved by God than you ever possibly dared to imagine in Jesus. Can you rest in that? When you can rest in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, when you can believe that your status with God is not based on what you've done or failed to do, it's based on what Jesus has perfectly done for you. When you can believe that, when you can rest and fall into that truth, then you'll begin to experience some consistency. Then you'll find yourself full of joy wanting to love and serve God and follow his law. Then you'll find yourself not feeling superior to others. Then you experience, you begin to experience the slow process of transformation into the likeness of Jesus. Only when you get the gospel that Jesus is our final rest, only when you see that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, will we ever begin to put to death the religion that is the default mode of all of our hearts. Dick Lucas is a very famous, uh, well, actually not very famous. He's an excellent preacher in London who's just about to die. He's been a preacher there for about 50 years. And he has a great story um, on this point about uh, an imaginary conversation between an early Christian in Rome and his non-Christian neighbor. And I want to close with just reading you this really quickly. So the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. That's great. Religion is a good thing. So tell me, where's your temple or your holy place? Well, we don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Where do your priests work? Where do you do your rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, spouted the pagan neighbor? And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. It's the gospel. In the gospel, you are fully accepted through the merit of Christ for you. And that leads you to obey joyfully. Will you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus. Father, we thank you that even when we fall into the default that so many of our hearts have of trying to acquire your favor, trying to measure up by being good or by doing the right things or by going through the motions. God, we thank you that you call us back to yourself. You call us to rest in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Father, we thank you that even in this passage, Jesus puts the microscope onto our heart again and shows us who we really are and then beckons us to come back to him. And so God, help us to come back to you tonight, we pray. And as we move now to confess our sins, we ask that you would hear our confession, that you would forgive us and acquit us of all of our sin against you and remind us of your deep, deep love. We pray in your name, amen.